Listeners, this is the BungaCast Reading Club. I'm Alex Ohili in São Paulo, Brazil, and we are also Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury. Hello. Hi. And George Hoare in London. I can be quicker off the mark. Hi. Yes, we are. We are Phil. We are Alex, and we are George. We're like Hi. Um, Hi. We're like we're like the Borg. There's just one of us, but we have three um, versions. But one of our limbs is a little bit slower than the others. Um, or something. I don't know what a Borg is. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, um, whatever the hell a Borg is. Yeah. Um, so Read a book we... sometime, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, we, we've we got today uh, the second episode, um, looking at the second part of Jürgen Habermas's Legitimation Crisis, which um, in this section reveals itself, I think, and gets really juicy um, after a lot of uh, arid terrain which you cover initially. Anyway, uh, is, that in, Borg? is that in the Borg? Is that in the Borg film? I don't know. I'm, Habermas okay. and Juicy, that just sounds terrible to, mm. together. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's um rich, it's uh creamy, the creamy middles. Um anyway. It's getting worse okay. and worse, Alex. Just leave it. So uh before we actually get started and I hand over to George um to talk us through what we're gonna be talking about specifically today, um I just wanted to give a shout out again to the local reading clubs. I've been in touch with most people who've been in touch at some point just to check how it's going, you know, whether you're meeting up regularly, whether you're looking for more people um, to join up. So what I'm going to do here is just list out the cities where we've had interest expressed in people meeting up. Sometimes there's a couple of people there that are looking for more or it just hasn't happened and others where you are meeting up um, and it's all going well and, you know, the more the merrier. Um, So in North America, Chicago, LA, New England, New York, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, San Francisco, Bay Area, Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Washington, D.C., Buffalo, New York, and Atlanta. In Europe, uh, Amsterdam, Berlin, Dublin, Groningen, Leipzig, London, Milan, Munich, Stockholm, Malmö, Copenhagen, um, somewhere there along the strait, uh, Tallinn, uh, Yorkshire in the northeast of England, Glasgow or Edinburgh, the east of England, and Oxford. And then finally, um, on the other side of the world, uh, Sydney and Melbourne. So, um, if if you've recognized your so city global or, conquest yeah exactly bunga you really should um do do that singing along to the the theme to the, right at, at right I, I know <laughs> i i just thought of the same thing i totally missed a trick there <laughs> no i just also like it's kind Maybe of I'll put the music one. in the background while i do it i'll, I'll try to edit that in if, if <laughs> and then yeah. it'll work okay. it. give it a go give it a go yeah all right um well george why don't you take us away yeah, so just quickly to recap, um, last time, uh, so that was the, the first se- uh, section of the book, A Social Scientific Concept of Crisis. And I guess in in there, you know, some of the things which we can carry through to this this part, I think there was a good discussion on, you know, what's the medical and then, then the dramaturgical concept of crisis and how does Habermas 
you know, with with a great deal of detail and German precision and and patience, construct essentially this very abstract but very um, uh, clear model of what a crisis is and how this fits to um, different stages of capitalism. How, in his view, you know, the objective and the subjective elements of crisis. Um, interrelate and um, you know I, I won't retread all of that ground um, now because that will take obviously as long as the uh, last episode and it would just be me speaking all three parts like uh, like the true Borg uh, guy um, but anyway getting a bit lost there um, just to kind of bridge then the f- the first and the second episode in this um, this part of the reading club Habermas basically kind of summarizes the first um part at the you know at the end of of that and and bridges um to the second part by setting out some some questions um so the second part is crisis tendencies in advanced capitalism um and Habermas says I would like to take up the not yet satisfactorily answered question has capitalism changed in the form is the fundamental contradiction of the capitalist social formation effective in the same way under the forms of appearance of organized capitalism or has the logic of crisis changed? Has capitalism been fully transformed into a post-capitalist social formation that has overcome the crisis-ridden form of economic growth? So this is basically the starting point that he, you know, and we'll we'll talk through how he uh, sets up this kind of model of the different sorts of crisis tendencies that exist in in contemporary capitalism. But yeah, what do we make of this as a starting point? This kind of um, way that he's talking about whether capitalism has changed. Or not? How does this give a bit of historical context to the to the exploration in the book? Well, I mean, I think I said this last time, but the book is very much a product of its time, and so although a lot of it is at a very high level of abstraction and pretends to um, describe the way societies work and sections of society work across capitalist modernity and probably even beyond that as we mentioned last time but there are bits also where the concerns of the book are very much of its time and i don't mean that as a slight on the book it makes it kind of quite rich um because of it but it does mean that you have to read the book with that very specific context in mind and again just to repeat what that context is this is the organized capitalism which emerged um as of you know through the interwar period and um, emerges after the post-war post-second world war period of monopoly capitalism of large capitalists joined together organized and managed to a certain degree by the state the state playing a much larger role in the economy welfare state and another factor which is i think important and really starts to come through towards the end of part two is the um, backdrop of generational and youth revolt may 1968 and all the rest um, and yeah. both of those are are factors which come through quite, become ever more present, I think, in Habermas's concerns as we go through the book. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think it's important. This um, it could only really be, have been written in this period where capitalism appears very organized. I mean, this is a term that we can we can uh, explore in a in a sec. That you know, before the neoliberal counter revolution, if that's the way you want to put it, but there's a there is a a um we're talking about this actually before we're recording you know what is this book about really in one sense it is the breakdown of the welfare state or the, the coming breakdown why is it that the neoliberals wanted to um wanted to destroy it what were the characteristics of you know of um capitalism in in the 70s that would be to a certain extent picked apart or or um crumble in the coming decades so yeah i think that 
that kind of question that could be asked, like, has capitalism been fully transformed into a post-capitalist social formation that has overcome the crisis-ridden form of economic growth? I mean, that has to be a question that's that can only be asked a couple of decades or a few decades after the end of the Second World War in, in Western Europe, because then it seems like, well, hmm, actually, you know, is, is, there a, uh, is there a possibility that this actually could have happened? I mean, wasn't to be. Um, but yeah, but still, you know, dates the book. And I think, as you were saying, Alex gives it that context makes it makes it richer. The fact that it had almost had to have been written then rather than being kind of trans historical, even though there's quite a lot of that sort of um, big scale thinking in the book. Anyhow, so Habermas does, you know, describe or does see advanced capitalism as organized. What is what is the what are the things that he sees as being organized? I mean, this um this question, in you know, I, one of the reasons why I like this book is because it has a lot of lists and a lot of tables. It's that it's that sort of um, analysis. So, what are the things that he um, thinks are organised? There's a greater role. So, I mean, he sees it essentially that the state takes on larger functions, not only of mediating between labour and uh, labour and the bosses, but also that the state directly takes on a greater role in administering and overseeing certain aspects of society um, and in particular that it involves itself through in the fact that the negotiations say become or um, labor capital negotiations mean and sectoral bargaining and all of that becomes a way in which um, the wage is set for instance wage levels are set means that there are parts of the market that effectively aren't aren't mediated through competitive, purely through kind of market competitive processes, but that it's the outcome of um, um, kind of uh, processes that are independent and separate of a purely market logic, at least as traditionally understood. And so that you have the encroachment basically of um, the encroachment of administrative and bureaucratic uh, procedures and processes into domains that had hitherto been um, either the preserve of the market, or and this comes—I mean, this comes—the logic of this comes a bit later, or the preserve of kind of um, tradition and culture, for want of a better word. Yeah, I mean, it probably George referred to lists. Um, page fifty-three and fifty-four has a has a list of four items where. The first two are things which pertain both to the liberal capitalism, which existed until 1914, um, and then things which are novel, uh, novel at the time, uh, features of organized capitalism. Um, and just to go through them. So it, uh, the first item is in order to constitute the mode of production and to maintain it, the prerequisites of continued existence must be realized. So the state secures the systems of civil law, defense, property, freedom of contract, blah, 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 all the stuff, the basic stuff of the kind of modern state does to make sure that capitalism can function. That's old stuff. That's liberal capitalism. Item two also is market complementing adaptations um, to a whole dynamic it does not influence. Um, so for example, creating new legal arrangements in banking and business law and manipulating the tax system. Again, fairly old stuff. There's lots of new stuff, um, you know, even in neoliberal capitalism, maybe in particular with um, new legal mechanisms which are allowed to allow ever greater financialization, right? But this is still an old story. But item three is already something a little bit new or something pertaining to organized capitalism, which is market replacing actions of the state. 
the latter do not simply take into account legally economic states of affairs that have arisen independently, but in reaction to the weaknesses of economic driving forces. So this is basically the market isn't working on its own. The state needs to step in um, to replace what the market would do um, and sometimes do things directly, right? Um, and then finally, item four, um, the state compensates for dysfunctional consequences of the accumulation process. So as an example of this, Habermas, is, Habermas says, the beginnings of the state expenditures classified today as social expenses and social consumption um, can be traced back in large part to politically achieved demands of organized labor. But anyway, so this is a, a, a labor kind of realizing certain of its demands in the state through the class compromise of the post-war period. But again, this is a, a feature of organized capitalism, which wasn't there under liberal capitalism. Yeah, I mean this. This is one of the, as I said, I mentioned the the lists, and there's just, I think he, it is a definitely a very comprehensive theory. In in like every section or every chapter that we go through, there's um, each of the different subparts of the of the system are treated um, with a you know kind of short description. I mean, I I had a slightly different list in in mind actually. Um, in terms of what is organized and how is it organized. So he talks about, you know, the economic system, how, you know, basically what Phil, you know, covered at the beginning. Um, but he also says that the administrative system is organized. You know, it it kind of involves global planning and the utilization of ac excess accumulation of capital. Talks about the legitimation system, and we'll obviously talk about that in quite a lot of detail as we as we go through. But what I kind of found interesting is that he does he does say that there is some basic organization of the class structure as well. And it, I guess the question is kind of who's doing the organizing or how does that come about? But his I just that thought it was an interesting claim that, and this is something which is obviously closely related to the legitimation system and the legitimation and motivation crises that I'm sure we'll talk about quite a lot of detail but he talks about how the political anonymity of class domination is superseded by social anonymity so this idea that he we talked about last time that in under kind of advanced capitalism there is this um instead of a kind of political as he would um as he describes it um nature or aspect of class domination it instead becomes um just a, a feature of uh, the structure of society so it's it's part of the um, the way in which the system is integrated. So I, I just thought that was an interesting kind of um, additional way in which capitalism is is organised. It's not just the state. I guess this is my point. It's not just the state organising the market, although this is crucial. It's also how the administrative system, the legitimation system, and the class structure all have principles of <clears throat> essentially kind of yeah, of of um, of organization and um, kind of rational ordering. So, yeah, I think this is the um, yeah, it's a it's a kind of useful starting point because this is the you know the, the the phase of capitalism that Habermas says that we're in, and as we said at the beginning, that kind of historical context allows us to say, well, is this actually true or is that actually true still today? But um, yeah, anything anything else to add on this before we move to the sorts of crisis tendencies. Okay, so yeah, I think this is sort of almost where the book starts, you know, starts heating up. You have to do quite a bit of, you know, preparation and you have to, I'm trying to think if you're, it's like if you're cooking, like you have to do your, 
all of your um, prep, you know, cut up all of the the vegetables uh, in very, you know, the same size. That's how you get the the delicious dish. Um, and that's what he's done. So he's pre- prepared this. I think it's called a mise en plate or mise en plat or whatever it is in French. So he's got all of yeah. the different ingredient <laughs> i'm really stretching this analogy no, it, it works it works it works and now yeah. and now like you filleted the fish and now but now it's going into the pan and the aromas are starting to to yeah 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 so now he's you know he's cooking with gas as it were um because this is where yeah so he says that there are four sorts of crisis tendencies the organized capitalism as he's we've just outlined it fairly briefly has economic rationality legitimation and motivation so there's four different sorts of of crisis tendencies, and I think one one way to to think about this is there's a kind, and he attributes this to to Marx that there's a I guess a kind of um, a, maybe it's a vulgar Marxist, or maybe it's actually accurate as to what Marx thought, and we could you know discuss that in a bit. This idea that for Marx, economic crisis leads to social crisis, leads to political crisis. So there's really in that kind of model of society, there's one crisis with three successive phases, whereas Habermas says, well, no, actually different, um, and we have another table, different um, parts of society can have different sorts of crises. Um, so you'd have in an economic crisis, this is always, sorry, that if the economic system has a crisis, that's an econ- economic crisis. If the sociocultural system has a crisis, that's a motivation crisis. But if the political system has a crisis, this can be of one of two sorts. It can be a rationality crisis or a legitimation crisis. And this depends on whether it's a system or an identity crisis. So that's quite a lot of uh, crises and, and tables and um, structures that listeners are being um, uh, addressed with. I mean, you know, this is why a table is so elegant, because you can just present it in a, in a three by two or maybe a three by three. Um, what did, yeah, what did you guys make of this? What was, you know, what stood out to you in terms of this kind of, this idea that you have three points of origin, economic, political, sociocultural, and then for each of those, the crisis of, is of one of two sorts. It's either a system crisis or an identity crisis. And it's only the political system that can have both. If it's the economic system, it's always a system crisis. If it's a sociocultural system, it's always a motivation crisis. Well, I think the hinge of this, I mean, it maybe to use the terms which are not Habermas's, but James O'Connor's in the fiscal crisis of the state, which is a work that Habermas refers to repeatedly throughout here. Um, you know, famously, capitalism is, that is interested in two things, you know, accumulation and legitimation. And it's easy to remember because they rhyme. Um, so it's a neat way to kind of boil things down. Um, Habermas obviously expands on that quite a bit. And to quote from the bottom of page 58, um, because a class compromise has been made, and again, this is referring to the post-war capitalism, this is not today, um, because a class comprom- uh, compromise has been made, the foundation of reproduction, the state apparatus, must fulfill its tasks in the economic system under the limiting condition that mass loyalty must be simula- simultaneously secured within the framework of a formal democracy and in accord with the ruling universalistic value systems. So, you know, this is basically the state can manage the economy and try to uh, smooth out crises or avoid crises altogether um, through the state's rationality. 
But if it's not able to do that because the state, state gets scrambled or overtaken by too many private interests, that might be a rationality crisis. If it's able to resolve those things, you know, and d- behave rationally as a state in terms of tending to capital, um, it might have legitimation pro- problems because people might not like it, right? People might just disagree with what the state's doing. And so that's where, where this hinge kind of operates, where you get um, economic crisis and rationality crisis, and then this hinge towards legitimation crisis and motivation crisis on the other side, the kind of soft subjective side, which is the latter part, and the kind of hard objective economic side is is, is a former side, I think, to put it in, in the simplest terms I can. Phil? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking... <laughs> It would be useful, I suppose. Perhaps we can do this at the end of the at the end of the um, reading club for for Habermas. Um, but it would be useful, and he doesn't really do this to differentiate the nature of crisis. You know, kind of what crisis is, and this with examples, not with this in kind of insanity-inducing structural functional language, but to discuss examples of crisis in liberal capitalism, how it differs from uh, crisis in organized capitalism. And then I suppose it's incumbent on us to think about how crisis is different in in neoliberal capitalism, um, which we're seeing the wrenching apart of at the moment. So, I mean, I, you know, I I think the way Alex put it as a hinge is quite, you know, is, um, is quite neat, but essentially, you know, the way I understand what he's trying to say is that as the administration, you know, as administration gets sucked into managing and overseeing processes that were once mediated entirely by the market, then they become subject to, they become involved in crisis tendencies, but they also become subject to their own kind of logics of crisis and their, they can be called into question through their effectiveness or ineffectiveness in terms of their functioning and how far they succeed, either on their own terms or in the extent to which they succeed in knitting together the things that they are supposed to be kind of recohering. So, yeah, I guess it's um, what Habermas's approach finds it probably more difficult to describe is how how things change. It can be a very good kind of static picture. Um, or You know, that's, I guess, one of the limitations of any kind of tabulation of information is how you, how you capture the fact that there is a, there is a movement between these, these categories. So this idea that you have, you know, system crises and identity crises, one of which are to go back to some of the language, which like, we used in you, the first can you, episode. Can you say what the difference is between these two? Yeah. I mean, that's what I was, was, was going to do. Um, so we're on the same, no, it means we're on the same page. Um, maybe literally of the book, I don't, I don't know, but, um, yeah, so my, the way I understood it was that those system crises are to do with, um, I'm going to have to try and find snappy ways to say, to summarize this without just using, just reproducing the terms that he uses. Um, but these are crises of what he's called in the first part, uh, system integration. So they're to do with the objective functioning of, of social structures, um, and how these um, bind together in objective terms. And then identity crises are crises of social integration, or what that, that's what he called it in the first part of the book. So these are um, crises of, of ex- experience, um, how the actors, you know, structure their behavior, understand it, the sorts of norms and things which, um, which they, you know, 
use to make sense of of their life. So I think by this interpretation, if if this is indeed correct, this idea that there's um, that every crisis has to have an inter like has to have an objective and a subjective aspect to it, which is one of the things that I think he you know start he, out, he lays out in the first part. Well, this is only really true for the political system because the the socio cultural system is always. Any, any crisis there is going to be a crisis of an identity crisis, i.e. a crisis of social integration. And any economic crisis is going to be a crisis of system integration. And it's in the political system that you can have these two aspects, these two, this kind of two, crisis, two different sorts of crises. The rationality crisis, which is that kind of objective system um, integration crisis. And then the legitimation crisis, which is that subjective identity crisis or or social integration crisis. So, you know, I guess, you know, but one one question which I think, you know, relates a little bit to what you um to what you sort of said at the beginning, Alex, that, you know, capitalism is about legitimation and accumulation. It's, you know, you can have a simpler system. Is is this model actually like basically too complicated? Obviously <laughs> in discussing it, it's you know you read it and you can kind of you know you can kind of make sense of it and then you find yourself explaining it discussing it and you realize that it's not possible to give really short accounts of what's going on you know there's a very complicated theoretical um, architecture which you know is is exactly what the book's trying to do but is it at risk of kind of over complexifying it i mean this is one of the things about you know systems theory in general perhaps is that it it does tend to posit quite a high number of um you know of of actors or of of aspects of the system so it it generally does tend to lead to this kind of model of society where it might be difficult to to actually hold the whole in your head because you know we've just talked about these you know three different parts and these three different parts have two different sorts of crises and so that would make six possible crises but only four of them exist in reality I mean, is this, you know, I guess this is related to that point that I made earlier, the, you know, this vulgar Marxist view, you might put it, where it always starts with the economic crisis, then leads to social crisis, then leads to political crisis. So I guess my question is, is this, you know, is this a helpful model or is it just too many different sorts of crisis uh, on the horizon? Well, I, I think his is a little bit more open to that, at least the structure he sets up. The way it's applied then to organized capitalism is a little bit more restricted because he's dealing with a more determinate case. Like his interest is in explaining why this capitalism, which seems to have overcome economic crisis, which is no longer ridden by economic crisis. Okay, this is back then, um, no longer the case. But back then it seemed to have overcome that, but that as a means of resolving those economic crises, that crisis shifts into different areas. And so, you know, legitimation crisis above all. Um, And he's interested in explaining that. And I think in that regard, it's good. But, you know, to a certain extent, it's something which maybe we can reflect on in in the final episode about how useful it is, but also to um, replace some of the uh, comment that I made in the first one. You know, it it kind of depends whether you prefer playing with Meccano or um, painting in aquarelles, right? It's just very different things. And maybe people understand this in different ways. Um, You can have Marx's, you know, Marx's writing is actually in many ways very poetic, right? And he's not kind of setting this up all in in hard lines, you know, it's dialectical and alive. Um, but it, but then it becomes kind of sometimes a little bit slippery and hard to grasp. So I think there's a, an obvious trade off in terms of ways of thinking and also ways of presenting um, 
mm. ways of presenting work. Um, you know, I thought I thought you were gonna there compare Meccano to Lego to Duplo. Like, do you prefer playing with Meccano? No, I don't think that Duplo? works. I think it's just yeah. I mean, there's a simpli- simplicity to Duplo. I mean, maybe that's vulgar Marxism, and then Marxism is Lego, and then Meccano is post-Marxism. It's just too complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I just so okay. Maybe if that if that's the kind of you know the 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 building blocks, if you will, the Duplo or Lego or Meccano constituent parts. I think there's you know only one bit. Just to, in case listeners haven't haven't read this, just to clarify really crudely, but I think it's useful. So my understanding is that within these kind of two political crises, what distinguishes that rationality crisis from the legitimation crisis, it's basically the rationality crisis is a kind of output crisis. So this is when the political system can't have sovereignly executed administrative decisions and a legitimation crisis is a problem of um, inputs. Uh, So i.e. in the citizenry, some kind of um, deficit or or some kind of uh, problem there. So... If that's if we sort of accept that that very crude summary is is just about good enough, the legitimation cri- legitimation system itself, um, what what is this? I think this was one of the um, there were a few kind of sections of this chapter that I thought were, or in my view were like the best bits. And this, so if you're reading along at home, this is uh, page thirty six to seven to the top of thirty seven. Um, I thought this was a really kind of useful account. Um, what and obviously you know in part depends on all of the theoretical uh, like all of that kind of chopping up of the vegetables that he's he's done theoretically previous to it but what what was this um uh his kind of view of the legitimation system well i mean i think we have to go back and understand what the crisis of the 1970s was and this is fundamentally understood and generally discussed in terms of an overburdening of the state with demands Right, that you not only had organized labor kind of constantly pushing up in different sectors and so on, um, but also new social movements imposing demands and the state trying to respond to all of them. Um, so this the crisis cycle, and here Habermas is referring to the economic crisis, distributed over distributed over time and diffused of its social consequences, is replaced by inflation and a permanent crisis in public finances. So this is how the organ the state under organized capitalism is trying to resolve and has displaced economic crisis and displaced it kind of onto itself because the state now takes responsibility and tries to smooth out economic boom and bust. But as a consequence, um, it you know has to print money. It has to um, increase the state budget. It tries to increase taxation, but it can't increase taxation too much because that'll piss people off. So it's trying to constantly respond to all these demands and keep people happy, um, but at the same time um, is kind of unable to do so. And this is where the kind of pivot happens between rationality crisis to legitimation crisis. If it tries to um, raise taxes to continue fulfilling its roles in servicing capital, um, the problem is, is that the way that taxes fall on people, that's always a distributional question. Who is it taxing? How much is it taxing them? Are they getting return for their money? Maybe it's taxing the middle class and the working class is benefiting and that pisses off the middle class. That creates a legitimation problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's how the rationality crisis can suddenly turn into a legitimation crisis. So it's like this this crisis is this little storm in your hand that you can't really hold on to and you transfer into another hand and then onto another hand. We've got several hands here. Um, and, you know, e- each one has to deal with it. It's a bit of a hot potato, right?
Yeah, I think there's um, just this idea of like a crisis created by an increasing number of competing demands or kind of challenges within, you know, essentially the inputs or the demands um, that come through the citizenry or, or the people. I think, yeah, this is definitely one crucial part of it. It did make me think, though, that <clears throat> part of the crisis of the of the 70s or that modern states find themselves in is possibly that the, you know, fundamentally the problems which they're expected to solve become more difficult, more complex. Like there's a whole set of kind of post-material challenges that the state cannot solve by, um, by, you know, by, by production alone. These are, you know, to the extent that citizens expect the state to, to solve these, that is going to, going to pour, going to, uh, create uh, the legitimation um, problems. But yeah, I, I mean, the context here, I, I think, is incredibly important. The more that the state does take up in that that role in production, the more it is required to legitimate itself. So you maybe have a lot of different, you know, and, and Habermas doesn't always necessarily talk in terms of dynamics or historical developments. But if you have those three at the same time, increasing kind of competing demands within society, a greater kind of difficulty of problems, which is related to definitely to the kind of rationality crisis because sovereignly um, kind of accessible or no, I can't remember what the, the phrase he, is, he uses, <clears throat> but the the sorts of decisions that the state takes are less likely to be solutions to those problems. And at the same time, that increasing function in, in terms of coordinating and organizing production, the objective conditions are there for a greater um sort of legitimation crisis but alex you you well, you wanted to yeah to no that. I, I think that's all good and um just a, a key section i think which explains and answers the the question it, it, page 69 um because the economic crisis has been intercepted and transformed into a systematic overloading of the public budget it has put off the mantle of a natural fate of society so just to explain that um, economic crisis doesn't seem like a naturalized phenomena anymore because now it's in the hands of the state. It's in the state's lap. If governmental crisis management fails, it lags behind programmatic demands that it has placed on itself. The penalty for this failure is the withdrawal of legi legitimation. Thus, the scope for action contracts precisely at those moments in which it needs to be drastically expanded. So again, that's you know, the state basically takes responsibility and says, I'm taking responsibility um, for the economy. We're not going to have any more economic crisis anymore. We're going to have continual steady growth and improvement in living standards and, and real uh, increases in wages. Suddenly there's economic crisis and it has to take that burden on itself. But because of economic, price, price, economic crisis, it is less and less able to actually act just at the moment when it is expected to act. And that's the legitimation crisis. And that's crisis in the sense of a compression of time, right? Where um, the, the, the system comes into contradiction. Um, it's meant to be doing something at, it, at the very moment where it's less able to actually respond. So just on that point- Why is it less able to respond? Well, because it um, because of um, like decreasing growth or problems in the economy, it has less fiscal receipts to actually- um, to actually, you know, spend. So how does it find its way out of the crisis? Well, you know, we'd have to fast forward well beyond Habermas's I'm book I'm not here. sure, because okay. I'm not sure that's right. Um, only in that he's, I think he's saying, because it's not seen as a natural fate. I mean, that's the question, right? So, so because it, it it's unable... Yeah. It mean, it's immediately yeah. politicized. 
it's not even politicized though. It's kind of seen as an administrative dysfunction. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, I mean, that's the kind of the other aspect of it. So it's not, um, I mean, maybe this is a subtlety that Habermas doesn't quite draw out himself, but it's not seen as something which is kind of uh, politically, you know, it's not something which you resolve politically as if one party is, um, you know, has the answers. One party might be a more efficient administrator of these processes or a better able to kind of um, put the administrative processes in place. But it's essentially um, managerial. I mean, I thought this was actually quite good. On this point in particular, where Habermas make, you know, he talks about how the character of the state's neutrality changes. Um, so it has to the functioning, you know, the function of this state in organized capitalism. It requires this administrative machine, which is seen to be neutral. So rather than the state of liberal capitalism, which kind of just hold upholds contract and property law and so on, you have the need for a for a larger corporate body, but that corporate body is has to be detached from kind of active political choices. So it has to, yeah. in order for it to uh, resolve the problems within society, it has to have this kind of logic of administrative independence and neutrality. So it's a shift in the nature of the neutrality of the capitalist state, which is, and I thought it was a good, you know, I thought it was a good point. Um, well, that's very well put, yeah. But... I and then this, you know, what this transformation happens is, like he says it, so I don't, I mean, I, my understanding was it's not because they don't have enough money to solve the problem. It's not a problem of fiscal receipts, but rather the fact that it can't, systematic overloading of the public budget, it has to put off the mantle of the natural fate of society. So it has put off the mantle of the natural fate of society. So it has to, it's its government crisis management fails, it lags behind programmatic demands that it's placed on itself. So if it fails to manage a particular economic problem, for whatever reason that might be, then immediately it suffers this withdrawal of legitimacy, yeah. which wouldn't be the fate of, a, of the state in liberal capitalism because the state wasn't expected to have any role in overseeing the functioning, the functioning of the market or the economy. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so, I mean, I, I, I might be interesting to just um, tell you what happens next <laughs> to fill out the picture, because, of course, Habermas is writing this in the early 70s. Um, the state actually result. Yeah, know, it's worth so saying, I mean, well, just to, you know, I mean, we haven't mentioned, but it's worth saying, I mean, it's in the aftermath of the oil shock, right? So, I mean, um, he's writing this before, have... before the oil shock, I think. Ah, it's well, that takes away my theory. I, th I think it's published in seventy two or seventy three. So you know, yeah, seventy three in German. But maybe yeah. Phil, maybe he's maybe he saw it coming. Maybe he just <laughs> intuited that there was a problem. And, and oil well, crisis. I mean, I guess uh, of the moment. Then anyway, I think if anything, it's more it's more prescient than it is, um, you know, responding to it. But anyway, maybe the English edition, English translation has changed. I doubt it. Anyway, um, but what, what I want to say is, in terms of what happens next, beyond that, there is obviously the neoliberal counter-revolution or passive revolution or however you want to talk about it, um, where there's a direct confrontation with labor, where it kind of seeks to not respond anymore to, to labor's demands um, for, for increases in wages and so on, um, but also debt. You know, debt massively important, and you have this massive expansion of capital markets, um, and uh, you know, as of as of kind of the the oil crisis, um, the oil shocks, and that it takes the form both of public debt and then in, in increasingly private debt as as you go into the nineties. 
Um, and what's amazing, kind of reading this from our perspective and looking back at the 2008 crisis, um, just to jump ahead, is the way that, um, you know, these supposedly inevitable legitimation crisis um, somehow doesn't materialize, really, with, with the 2008 crisis. Okay, we're going to say, of course, we can discuss a lot more about that. But it's kind of like they kind of got away with it. Right. So a lot of the things that Habermas is saying that like the state is in a wedge, it's it cause it has a real problem for itself because it sets up that it will resolve all these problems and then it's kind of unable to and it's ha- and is people withdraw legitimacy because of it. What ends up happening is that the state is able to go, yeah, we're not doing anything <laughs> right. We're not we're, we're kind of at the most taking responsibility for economic stability through massive bailouts. But that gets paid out in terms of austerity to the mass of the population. And what happens kind of nothing. People just accept it. And so that's a very radically different world to mm-hmm. the one Habermas is in, where you have a much more engaged citizenry, despite all his points, which we'll come to, about um, civic privatism. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right. So I think the um, I think the point about it's not so much the citizenry is engaged, it's more, I think, the ways in which the various apparatus of the state and its administrative you know, kind of arms relate the justifications that they give for their own activity. Um, are transformed. Well, I, I so I don't it's think it's dependent I think demands, on, social demands yeah, are it's institutionalized. So I think that's, but that's not quite the same thing as saying that, you know, it's not as if um, you could say that, you know, I don't know, the average citizen is necessarily more engaged directly. No, no, that, you're right. That's a correct makes, yeah. You know, he makes an important point, I think, about civic privatism. So it's important not to kind of mythologize, retrospectively mythologize this period as a great kind of era of, um, you know, as a great era of uh, yeah, polit- yeah, civic involvement yeah. and, you know, yeah, and political energy and so on. You know, a lot of it is kind of uh, passive in a different kind of way. Well, in fact, in that's the, the whole point of the new left. It was like, you're all conformist. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> right. You know, so, I mean, it's the new left was partly a revolt against all of this, like bureaucrats of trade union leaders um, and all of their allies kind of sitting together with state functionaries, sitting together with corporate bureaucrats and cutting deals in back rooms and, you know, all of that. So, I mean, it was partly... so. Anyway, I think the point about civic privatism is actually well made, you know, that it kind of it necessarily has to function on the basis of civic privatism. And that's that was that's an important point, I think. So um, just, just to um, what is civic privatism? Well, it's that idea, the sense of a withdrawal that there is we leave we um, we have our private sphere that's autonomous and separate from these other um from these other kind of uh, these other elements, because we rely upon the state and its administrative uh, functioning to res- to administer certain parts of society and deal with certain kinds of issues and problems. So it's base. It's predicated. He's making a good point. It's predicated on a kind of um, public withdrawal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess I just wanted to to ask a final question on on this, and then try and sum it up a little bit for listeners, because I think this is a really crucial part of the whole the whole book. And I think particularly hearing the two of you guys talk about, you know, how are problems created and who should solve them? That's almost like the, <clears throat> you know, he obviously Habermas wouldn't put it in those terms, but that you know the creation of social problems and and whether the state is responsible or not, that's really at the core of what the legitimation system is but yeah he talks he talks in you know only three paragraphs on the legitimation system and third one is on the structurally depoliticized public realm so one part of this as you know 
um, just talked about is civic privatism, as he puts it, political abstinence combined with an orientation to career, leisure and consumption. But yeah, this idea of a structure very much, very much West Germany, I think, perhaps, I mean, Mm. perhaps more so than the other, um, you know, more so, I think, perhaps than, um, say, France or Italy or even perhaps Britain of the era. Um, You know, so I think that perhaps doesn't extend quite as far as he might imagine. I think that's much more kind of the historic context of Western Germany, where politics is, you know, seen to be um, to lead to fascism. Do I guess my question is, do do we have a structurally depoliticized public realm today or what is the importance of this of this term? Because I think this is another kind of um, conceptual part. So, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess this is the final part maybe of the legitimation system. So in the third paragraph, it's only three paragraphs. When he talks about the legitimation system, he talks about the structurally depoliticized public realm. And the first part of this we've already talked about, civic privatism, that is political abstinence combined with an orientation to career, leisure and consumption. But what what else is there to this um, structurally depoliticized public realm? Why is it important for, for Habermas that this that this happens, you know, you know, what is it? Well, so there's um, a lot of references to um, will formation, collective will formation. And the basic idea is that if you have too much collective will formation, that impedes capital's ability, or rather the state to um, serve capital um, in the way that, you know, that that arrangement should work. Um, And so it depends on people being, you know, as common as would be commonly discussed, being apathetic. Right, not being very involved in politics or being involved in a very routinized, institutionalized way. So even if there's eighty percent, ninety percent turnout at elections, um, it's with um, perhaps not the levels of um, kind of enthusiasm um, that one might expect, and that it's intermittent. You know, you go and you vote for another party, and you. You, you vote for the party that maybe you always vote for um, and they alternate, but there's a broad consensus on how the economy should be managed. Um, and, you know, that this applies as much to 1970 as it does to 2023. Um, it's a great, you, well, on. I was just going to say, it's a great line where he talks about how these theories, which, you know, very, I mean, it's kind of the stuff you get fed in political science 101 is these theories of participation or um, voting, which essentially make voting itself redundant, right, and meaningless. So in the same way that it's um, – so, and he makes the case, page 37, that this these kinds of theories of um, uh, voting essentially as political part- – is the, meaning, the only meaningful political participation. Um, it's the one, you know, this kind of essentially this um, empty ritual, which is a consumer choice between different political parties. And he says it serves the same role that the um, classical political, the way in which classical political economy described the market as essentially just functioning spontaneously as if it were a natural product. And I thought that was a brilliant, you know, it was a brilliant kind of insight into how different kinds of um theoretical accounts of behavior function in different ways in different contexts anyway it was a good point i thought no it definitely reminded me of all the rational choice theory explanations of voting i don't know if you guys have have come across these the idea that the chance that you have to be the decisive voter is extremely low so why um why does anybody vote well they, they they kind of do because they're irrational and you know the system works fine without them really the whole idea basically you know essentially as you were saying phil being that the you know thing 
the political system, it just kind of works over there and it doesn't require any anybody, any individual to actually participate in it. So it just is a self self-maintaining um sort of vibe. Um yeah, anyway. And, and I think and to just want to um just to elucidate a distinction mm. that he makes between familial vocational privatism and civil privatism, because both are very important, but they work in different ways. So on page 76, he talks about how he's he neglects psychological questions. It's, when he talks about motivation, it isn't um, about getting in people's heads specifically. Rather, um, you know, familial vocational privatism, which crystallizes around the well-delimited achievement motive, is positively determined. That's a lot of blah, blah, blah. What does that actually mean? So that means a familial vocational privatism is primarily concerned around this positive value of achievement, success career, etc. right? Advancement in your, in your private life, um, a new, a better house, a bigger house, car, etc., etc. right? Um, while civil privatism, he contrasts, delimits attitudes only negatively, namely on the basis of deficient contributions to will formation. Again, really verbose and a little bit hard to kind of unpick, but what he basically says is civil privatism isn't really saying anything positively. It just says, don't get involved too much in will formation. Don't kind of collectively decide on self-rule and how society should be structured. It's based on withdrawal rather than kind of positive engagement. Exactly. You have to work hard for your house and your career, but for civic privatism, you just have to kind of nosy on, yeah, stay home most of the time and go to the ballot box once every four or five years, whatever it is. Yeah. So, okay, if this is some of the elements of the legitimation system, and I think we, you know, we covered probably some more than these, but I think these are some things which came out. The first being that there's, you know, in terms of the context, you have this, the Habermas is writing in, you have, I guess, different competing demands. You know, we talked about these processes of collective will formation combined with an increasing difficulty of problems potentially. Um, So just like more complex problems that the, the state uh, has to solve and crucially at the same time the state intervening or coming to play a, a role in production meaning that economic problems through that process become the sorts of problems that citizens expect the state to solve um, if this is some of the context then Habermas's ideas or, or idea of what the legitimation system is is that you have this kind of structurally depoliticized public realm so a political system that um is based on and, and solicits uh, diffuse mass loyalty, but avoids participation. And then the state apparatus finds itself in a very, in a very different position. So I just wanted to read out this quote and then, and then kind of dig into this a little bit. So he says, and this, you know, a bit of a summary of, of some of the things that we discussed, we didn't really discuss the, the role that increased perhaps technical state power might might play because it seems like at the same time that all of these things happen, the state acquires new tools or new um, technical methods potentially to solve problems, but these are not uh, the sorts of problems that citizens actually want to be to be solved. Um, so yeah, he says the state apparatus no longer, as in liberal capitalism, merely secures the general conditions of production in the sense of the prerequisites for the continued existence of the reproduction process, but is now actively engaged in it. It, it must therefore, like the pre-capitalist state, be legitimated, although it can no longer rely on residues of tradition that have been undermined and worn out during the development of capitalism. So that's on page 36. And then just to skip forward, because I think he kind of, he returns to this and, and digs into it a bit in what I think is one of the, the most interesting parts of this of this um, section. 
he says on this is page 77, um, bourgeois society as a whole was never able to reproduce itself from itself. Is this is this right? I think this is right at the center of like what what I understood to be the 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 process or the dynamic aspect of of this otherwise potentially quite static um, model. But yeah, bourgeois society as a whole was never able to reproduce itself from itself. Is that is that right? Well, it would I, be it, consistent, wouldn't it, with, um, I mean, it would be consistent with the classic Marxism, um, I think, right, in the sense of Marx's classic critique was it can only kind of emerge by thinking of itself either as like, you know, the Israelites um, uh, overthrowing Pharaoh in the case of Cromwell or as like um, the recreation of Rome and Sparta in the case of America and France. Um, so it has to, you know, it has its insufficient, its own kind of resources are insufficient to achieve its own goals, um, at least in establishing itself. And then you have the kind of the spontaneous functioning of the market, which is supposed to, then it kind of relies on nature to achieve its, um, for its own uh, ordinary functioning once the conditions for bourgeois society are established. Yeah. And I mean, so you have actually to rewind maybe historically, you know, the period of revolutionary democratic bourgeois society and bourgeois ideology, which is 1789 to 1848, let's say, um, where that um, bourgeois... So let me actually quote from the bottom of page 76. Bourgeois democracies, the old as well as the new type, require supplementation by a political culture that screens participatory behavioral expectations out of bourgeois ideologies and replaces them with authoritarian patterns remaining from pre-bourgeois traditions. Okay, what does that mean? Um, basically, you know, you have this kind of revolutionary democratic bourgeois ideology of the bourgeoisie taking down the aristocracy, the ancien regime, but that no longer works as a, as a means of legitimation because, you know, if the system needs to function as an economic system um, for the extraction of surplus value, you can't have this very engaged citizenry, as we've been discussing. You can't have all these revolutionary Democrats out there engaging in will formation. you kind of got to be at home, just focus on your career and so on, right? So it needs to screen that out. And what it needs to rely on, um, as Habermas says, um, is authoritarian patterns remaining from pre-bourgeois traditions. Um, so, you know, it, has, it relies on these kind of feudal vestiges to keep people um, to keep people quiet. So, you know, what would that be traditionally? That would be like deference, religion, etc., why doesn't bourgeois ideology on its own, why isn't it able to um, provide people with motivation to keep participating in the system and not withdraw their legitimation? Well, the idea is that it's basically just too um, arid. It's too kind of stale, you know, a pure bourgeois ideology. And he, spe he spells this out in a little list in page 78. Um, Genuine bourgeois ideologies offer no support in the face of basic risks of existence, guilt, sickness, death, to interpretations that overcome contingency. In the face of individual needs for wholeness, they are disconsolate. Um, in bourgeois ideology does not make human relations possible with a fundamentally objectivated nature, with either outer nature or one's own body. Bourgeois ideologies don't permit intuitive access to relations of solidarity within groups or between individuals. And bourgeois ideologies don't allow any real political ethic. In any case, in political and social life, they accommodate an objectivistic self-interpretation of acting subjects. Anyway, so that, you know, pure bourgeois ideology is pretty arid and leaves you feeling pretty alone and sad, right? Um, See, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure. It's. I'm not sure. It's 
true exactly as a social scientific account. Um, in the sense, I think it's a historical, you know, it's the historical result of um, what happens in the post-1848 period, uh, you know, that it becomes that bourgeois politics becomes more conservative and authoritarian, more nationalistic. And that is, uh, but that's a result of, cri- you know, that's a result of like the crisis of 1848. Well, sure, um, but also, but also of, because it can't do the revolutionary democratic thing anymore, right? Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah. So, but it's not, I mean, I suppose it's not, you know, like kind of trying, he, I think he, what he's doing here is essentially kind of um, mischaracterizing a historical, a historical problem as one of uh, kind of as if it's something which is uh, specific to bourgeois society as a whole. Whereas if you date bourgeois society to, I don't know, the 1600s or something like that, you know, like with the um, the city-state merchant republics and so on, you know, which is uh, kind of portrayed in all the uh, all those beautiful Dutch um, Dutch old master paintings, that would be the kind of, you know, the self-sustaining bourgeois society that wouldn't need kind of recourse to these kind these patterns, I think, or the kind of the society that Locke kind of envisaged in his um, in his notions of the social contract and uh, the society of colonists that was emerging in America. So I think he's I think he's mischaracterizing. You know, I think he's kind of. Uh, you know, assimilating all this kind of historic stuff and mulch, mulching it up into his social scientific apparatus and it's coming out kind of, you know, in little kind of squares of uh, manufactured gloop on the other mm. end. I it's not of, to I say he's of, wrong the, necessarily, yeah. I think he's, but he is kind of flattening out different historical periods. I mean, I, I tend a little bit more to the structural rather than the historical explanation here just because um, there is a, a, an essence about bourgeois ideologies, which you can say, you know, it's the ideology ultimately of the market. Um, where which it is arid, right? Um, and the 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 poor the what you refer to as bourgeois society, you know, say in the sixteen or seventeen hundreds, I don't think is a pure bourgeois society. No, the pure bourgeois society is today. That of the sixteen and seventeen hundreds was so embedded in cultural tradition, which um, was its own support. Um, although even I'm even as those sure were intention true. with the ancien regime, which ultimately comes calm to down, a Alex. head. In, calm down, Alex. No, calm down. No, <laughs> don't, don't calm down. Get get excited. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but those crown traditions, you know, come to a head in you know something like the French Revolution or whatever. Um, but the the point is, is that yeah, I disagree. The 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 reality is that the the pure bourgeois ideology is only today. You know, it's only kind of. As of 1973, if I wanted, if I were to had to put me against a wall and make me date it, <laughs> I would say then. But it's not pure. I think. I mean, I think that's the point. It's not meaningful. I think if you live in a world of, um, you know, like of Protestant, of kind of Protestant work ethic, where that's meaningful, and there is like a meaningful correlation between your self advancement in life and the amount of work that you do. You know that then I think you have, and you're a Protestant. You are actually a Protestant. You know, then I think that kind of, that makes sense, and that is in fact that self-sustaining bourgeois society. Whereas now, in the aftermath of that world, um, it's and indeed in the aftermath of the world that Habermas is describing, I don't think it's meaningfully like. I mean, what's meaningfully bourgeois about um, you know about the kind of uh, or a pure kind of bourgeois vision of the society that we're in now? I don't think it is. Well, I think Habermas does does take a position on this. His his like 
I think at the core of what he understands bourgeois society or bourgeois culture to be is possessive individualism. He talks about it like Benthamite utilitarianism and possessive individualism. This is one um, of his formulations. And he has um, on page 82 to 3, he does talk about, um, you know, what what is what is possessive individualism? This, you know, I'm not. 100% 100% sure if he's referring to McPherson's idea, but, you know, that's another... Most likely. Yeah, I mean, I should just check the, the footnotes, but that's, you know, that's scholarly, you know, uh, over-reading, you know. Just read the text, don't read the, the footnotes. Um, anyway, the... Um, yeah, so he says, historically, bourgeois society understood itself as an instrumental, instrumental group that accumulated social wealth only by way of private wealth, that is, which secured economic growth and general welfare through competition between strategically acting private persons. You know, so far, so familiar. But I think the what he's trying to say is that this model of society or this like view of the individual, it can only, I think that the point that you made, Phil, about like it requires pre-bourgeois um poetry or like politically yeah politically politically to bring itself into being that's that's you know that i think is almost certainly um you know true but i think he's also saying that the everyday functioning of this society requires a um requires a kind of a a, a reservoir of pre-bourgeois ways of people associating with each other because the pure bourgeois ideology is so um anti- social and and contradictory and in and of itself that it cannot sustain society it cannot yeah. be the the, the but he basis says, on which on which people can interact and have a um and have a kind of continuing set series of interactions it's sort of you know kind of going back to rational choice theory often the so rational, but then like, interactions require prior um context otherwise you just do the prisoner's dilemma and you you always sell everyone out and that's you know that's not that doesn't make for good um good trade sure um but i mean so i mean he says here like a developed capitalist societies neither presupposition is any longer fulfilled as a matter of course direct on page top of page 83 directly after the part that you quoted which i think bears out the point right that you can't the kind of that um that vision you know of the dutch kind of uh dutch protestants in their ruffled in their ruffled collars and dressed in black and whatnot um that vision doesn't apply anymore and you can't take it for granted of that uh, that social outcomes are the result of um simply the kind of uh, spontaneous effect of uh, individual decision making you can't that's just as you cannot take that as a presupposition so i think he bears out the point that i was making before yeah but i think the question is how does how do you get to this um situation and and the, the picture that you were drawing there reminded me of this rembrandt called the anatomy lesson of dr nicholas tulp um it's this really great painting like listeners should should check this out and i remember reading and i can't remember where it is this um um analysis of this painting so you have this guy and he's got like this these um scissors or whatever it would be reaching into the body of this um this guy who's just dead on the slab and all these you know dutch guys in their collars are like looking over and what he's doing is he's he's getting the he's using the the calipers or whatever they are to kind of stimulate the the tendon of the dead man's arm and the the analysis of this was like you know this is how um you know this is the 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 pure like bourgeois vision of the body like the person doesn't even have to be dead you can use the tool to get the man's arm to mimic 
the person who's who's got the calipers and is reaching in anyways that's might be a bit of a digression yeah, no, but you just that's you kind of when you were talking about the the dutch with their ruffled collars it just reminded me of that but i think yeah the question is how yeah because of course yeah these these presuppositions never are not fulfilled as a matter of course but i think habermas would say because this is precisely because the pre bourgeois moral reservoir has run has run dry like yeah. you don't have the the things which sustain and, and kind of prop it up anymore and so now that you've reduced it just to its barest essence it's it's shown to be unsustainable we might not actually it, it, be disagreeing it, it, it's I a crisis of meaning but... it's a crisis of meaning i mean this is the the backdrop to it i mean this is to go back to the previous chapter it's page 73 but you know he, he makes the question of of meaning uh explicit meaning is a scarce resource and is becoming ever scarcer and then um a couple of lines down um the rising level of demand is proportional to the growing need for legitimation the physically the fiscally siphoned off resource value must take the place of the scanty resource meaning you know this is basically like filling the meaning hole with money um to put it really crudely um or but it's also other things you can fill that hole with (laughs) it's also that the money the 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 rules of making the money require the prior meaning and they erode it yeah as you go along and so then you run out of meaning and you're just left with the money and you're like well, then, then you start talking about meaning holes on on a podcast, and you're you're kind of <laughs> yeah. You're, 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 you're exposing your, is, your your spiritual breathness. This, it, this, this, this is, will have a title this episode because it's just reading club. But otherwise, I'd call it the meaning hole for sure. But no, I think <laughs> this, um, this, this is this, why it doesn't work. I think though the mean you know the idea that meaning is a scarce resource is just totally nonsensical. You know, like um, and the idea that there is some kind of you know that the um, that these administrative processes are like, uh, you know, I don't know, like nodding donkey um, oil, you know, oil wells that are just kind of extracting this meaning from this diminishing reservoir. And then at the end, you know, because it suggests you reach some outer limit point after which there's nothing left. And that's just not true, you know, well, that but, we no, recreate. But, it's, but we're constantly in crisis, right? So this is the, the, the point is, is that because <sighs> because there aren't these pre-bourgeois reservoirs, I made a note in the margins here, you know, that bit which I read out earlier about uh, genuine bourgeois ideologies offering no support in the face of basic risks of existence, etc. I wrote in the in the margins, therapy culture and new age fills the void, right? So that's one example of the way in which capitalism has reached for new means of legitimation and of motivation, perhaps even more importantly today, um, to kind of... Yeah, to- which are very effective. Which are effective, but they're not. But they don't. You know, but rise and grind are very they, effective. Yeah, it's a very effective ideology. Right, rise right. and grind plus therapy, like that. That's the kind of ideology okay. of our day. But it's in crisis, right? I mean, it's not. Um, Is it? Well, yeah, I think so. Let's, but let's, let's, why let's everyone seems to, to like it. Let's let's come back to this. I think this is one that we should we should park. But I think it's sorry, Alex. I didn't mean to kind of um, to cut you off there as you were potentially. No, 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 no. It's, it's your, good. You're right. We can we can we'll come back to it. Um, but yeah, we should we should come back to it because that I think that's the sort of question that this this gets us to to ask. So maybe as a, you know, moving towards a final question, um, one of the things which Habermas talks about in motivation um, crises is 
the role of of art um and this kind of he does because he one thing he does say is you know you have this uh, as you were describing alex this arid kind of um very um i guess it's very partial bourgeois ideology it doesn't um kind of i don't know doesn't address the individual need for for wholeness at all um and he says bourgeois art has is the only thing that seems to be partly autonomous from this um but yeah i guess more generally what is the role within these kind of motivation crises or uh, of of art in general of um, of culture particularly i guess you know the context is is important here of he he has quite a few references to the kind of to 68 so yeah what did you guys make of 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 this yeah, I mean, well, the references are, are very are certainly indirect, not explicit, but um, but are certainly there. Uh, so you know, he taught in the th- three kind of bases of of kind of pr- bourgeois ideology providing motivation. Um, in the time that he's writing, he talks about scientism, which I think we can say is definitely the case and has only grown. Um, the second one is post oratic art, you know, it's art which no longer has an aura like an old religious art, you know, kind of. This is reference to Benjamin, um, and then finally universal morality. And I, I think the art question is most interesting because Habermas talks about that as being an area of life which still might have meaning, kind of beyond the market, and something which at his time he talks about it being kind of inserted into counterculture, but which still has some sort of explosive, um, explosive potential, right? And that it can provide romantic imaginings. These are this is my my words, not Habermas's. But some romantic, you know, imaginings of of a world that could be otherwise, um, and that art provides that. And the and bourgeois ideology still talks about this kind of independent art, art for its own sake. And you know that that has an element which might be genuinely countercultural, genuinely explosive. And what's remarkable about that is how that isn't uh, any more the case. Um, both, you know, subculture hardly exists anymore. You know, to the, at, at best, it's kind of. Um, TikTok videos and stuff that's going on there. I don't think it counts as subculture in the same way. And art has no explosive potential because it's been fully subsumed by the market. You know, the, it's just a, a section of, of finance art basically nowadays. So um, I think that we're we're in a rather different world. And so one of the ways in which Habermas is trying to tease out some of the contradictions of that organized capitalism where, you know, art might still have been a, a kind of counter, you know, kind of... Um, kind of key piece of contradiction isn't any more the case. I, I found that quite interesting um, to reflect on. Yeah, I guess I, I think it's, you know, when hearing you put it like that, it does seem like one of the important aspects of, of Habermas's account of bourgeois cultural ideology is that kind of really strict separation between kind of possessive individualism and Benthamite utilitarianism on the one hand, and, you know, art for art's sake, on the other, this kind of, you know, it's art that speaks to these, these kind of like truly human needs, which maybe religion used to uh, speak to. Um, and that, that, I guess that whole kind of division or that, that cultural ideology, I, I would say in Habermas's view is dependent on those pre, like those pre-bourgeois um, moral kind of systems. But it's clear, yeah, today that that, that division has completely collapsed, like art is not, isn't has to be instrumentally politically or or less financially but except in certain cases but certainly kind of socially useful and possessive individualism seems similarly to be to that kind of the, the pure bourgeois 
subject is you know probably very rare indeed we don't have um quite so many dutch protestants as we as we used to um maybe it's rational choice theorists but they're not really in vogue any anymore any anyway but no i think um i think it it's yeah, he he. It's, it's clear that that's his kind of, or he sees that as bourgeois society's kind of release valve almost. That it's that's the the explosive ingredients. Um, well, I mean, a release valve. Would, I think a, a release valve would suggest that that is a way that it resolves crisis. He's suggesting something different that it that it potentially is a is a accelerant of of crisis or or in some way um, is a way in which the system might come apart, I guess, right? Yeah, Um, and this is where I think it breaks down, right? I mean, how could you... So I think Alex is right in terms of um, identifying its kind of uh, context. You know, it's where kind of you had the new left had um, high hopes for art. He's writing in Germany, you know, with so... And I'm sure he's uh, writing with kind of Adorno in mind as well as um, an aesthetic, a critic... Um, of art and aesthetic theory was a part of the, you know, part of the earlier Frankfurt school and all that. So I think all of that is kind of absorbed into the background assumption of the text, but I don't see, and in contrast to now, like where Alex says, like art is basically, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like a Ponzi scheme or like just another kind of hedge fund. (laughs) Yeah. Or just another hedge fund industry, essentially. You know, it doesn't have any of the, um, it's uh, diminished even to the extent that it doesn't um, have that kind of uh, hope, I suppose, that you could have, you know, you might have imagined it had uh, during the student revolts of the 1960s. But this is where, you know, what does it mean to say it would be explosive? Explosive how? You know, explosive like uh, the miners' strike that brought down Ted Heath in the 70s was? Um explosive in the way you know that uh, kind of political crises are potentially explosive when he suggests that it's possible for art to potentially kind of uh, i don't know like um disintegrate all the kind of motivational patterns and uh, structures of social interaction that he sets out here it just seems to me so overstated that whatever he's, you know, this idea that it's possible to simply displace crisis from one realm into another until you end up at the point where some avant-garde art exhibition could supposedly bring down the system. You know, it seems to me at that point, he's entirely kind of bought in to the uh, the wacky conceits of the new left of the time. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in two minds about this because there's passages on page 90 and 91, which... I think point in different directions. So well, tell us. Yeah, well, I hopefully you can help me figure it out as well. I'm not really certain. Page ninety: um, complexes of countercultures in which post-oratic art is incorporated are today already determining typical socialization processes among several strata. That is, they have achieved motive-forming power, right? So, kind of basically like liberal middle-class kind of countercultural types. Um, I think he's anticipating the, the um I think he's anticipating here the argument in fact of uh, the new spirit of capitalism. Yeah, I think so too. I yeah. think that's essentially what he's saying. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there it seems that he's suggesting that this will be just incorporated by by capital and used as new raw material for for motivation and legitimation in the future. Um, and there's also then on the on the opposite page in 91 a whole discussion about adolescence which again is very much 
in reference to youth revolts, generational revolt, the 1960s and so on, um, where he also says that, um, you know, he talks about kind of how we're adolescence is being lengthened, right? And so because of longer education, people's adolescence is carrying on uh, until the 30s, loosening of sexual prohibitions made possible by pharmaceuticals or working out in such a way that socialization processes free of anxiety with an expanded scope for experimentation become more probable for adolescents, etc. This is all very well-known stuff about sexual revolution, etc. Um, but, you know, it, there's a kind of ambivalence, I think, or maybe I just can't decipher whether he's saying that basically um, this this is going to be more revolt or this is actually just going to be kind of worked its way out. Um, there's a paragraph at the top of 91, which is um, the components of the cultural tradition that are today dominant are more likely to be reflected at the level of the personality system the more frequently the form of development of the adolescent crisis forces a second birth and prevents a conventional outcome of adolescence. Um, so the conventional outcome of adolescence is that you grow up, I assume. Um, but a second birth means that you kind of hold on to these ideals longer into life um, so that you so, remain a counterculturalist longer into life. This idea of the of, of arrested development and, you know, sl is this kind of slackers? Is this what he's... He's kind of um, hmm. thinking about it, that's just what I kind of had in my mind as you were saying that. I don't know what the second birth is. Is this oh, so, kind so, of adult baby? Second birth is an idea. I mean, I think like he referenced <laughs> William. James. I don't think it's a sexual fetish. No, it, I think it's, it's, it's when you become. To, it, it's yeah, William James. It's reference William James, who I think he, he says it in this book, or was it elsewhere that I was reading this? I can't remember now. But that you know, your first birth, um, it's all tacit stuff which you don't think about you're, you're brought up with it and you take all these cultural values for granted a second birth is like you maybe rebel against all the stuff you move away from it and then you're you re-expense a, a second birth when you go back to those original values but in a much more reflexive form that you're self-consciously aware of it like a newborn uh not a newborn like a like a reborn christian right who maybe was brought, brought up christian rebels and then kind of rediscovers christianity and has a new fervor for for the faith so kind of und undifferentiated unity, differentiated disunity, differentiated unity. It's yes. Kind of the, the synthesis. Mm, okay. Yeah. I've never heard that that idea of a second birth. Um, but yeah, probably it is a bit more. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, I can I can kind of see it a bit more than that idea of the adult baby, which I <laughs> probably, get, get, probably is a fairly yeah, let's not go experience. There. I just had one, one last point, if I could, um, which... You know, and also if listeners want to help us out with this question of how he's reading adolescence and counterculture, um, whether he thinks it's, um, you know, provoking a revolt or whether it'll just be incorporated, let us know. Um, but one final point, because it's about civic privatism, which I think is very central, again, as we've discussed, and I think we all agree that it remains essential in capitalism. Um, actually, we can refer to the episode that we did with um, Vivek Chibber on his book, which also touches on this in a, in a certain way where, you know, effectively, you know, privatism, demoralization, etc., which are not the same thing. But anyway, um, that those function to kind of uh, keep the system stable. Um, and one of the interesting things he notes, which is on page 72, is the way that private life has become increasingly politicized. Um, of course, he's referring to the kind of 1960s and the sexual revolution, but is very much relevant to our times where these questions are very alive and very conflictual and are come down to very important 
questions of identity, much more than they did in the 1960s and 70s. Um, the stirring up of cultural affairs that are taken for granted thus furthers the politicization of areas of life previously assigned to the private sphere. So w- what does that mean when, especially today, that the private, the private sphere has become a war zone of competing claims? Um, we're, all, we're constantly assailed by these different claims. We're asked to think about who we are all the time and what we believe about all these questions, which are... Um, at once very intimate about, you know, who you fancy or what gender you're going to be or whatever, all the way up to kind of big geopolitical and climatic questions and whatnot, um, effectively hyper politics. And does that make us more quiescent or more prone to revolt, right? Um, does this enhance privatism or or undo it? It undoes it, I think, because it's not a settled, you know, it can't be treated at least for the kind of... Um, you know, the kind of socially engaged middle classes, it becomes this kind of tormented realm where you have to make everything, even kind of uh, basic decisions, become matters that have to be kind of publicly demonstrated or affected. Um, And I suppose on one hand, it's liberatory or oppressive, however you want to see it, but it's not, it doesn't seem to me it's like that settled, that settled sphere into which you can comfortably withdraw. Mm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think it's doubly um, quiescence inducing because it's its obviously related to what he talked about earlier, this structural depoliticization of the public realm. It's almost like you have a structural depoliticization of the public realm and it's not quite structural. It's like um, disorganized politicization of the private sphere. And then this, you know, to, to the extent that it undermines that division between public and private and and removes the the kind of the, the precursors for political action in the private sphere, that's, you know, no bueno. And similarly, the way that it's, you know, part of that same dynamic that undermines the depolit or depoliticizes the public sphere, that's not, that's not great because all of the, you know, private problems um, permit of kind of private solutions. So it's, it is, it's atomizing and individualizing. I mean, this is not particularly, you know, I'm not, not going to, go on too much on, on that because it's not particularly an original um point but i think it's almost like so many so a lot of the ideas in this chapter and this section are very interesting and once you actually kind of get get around some of the language it's um it's written in mm. because it could be you know i mean i'm not like grading Habermas's paper and saying you know write more clearly but that's kind of a thought that, that came to mind um, when I was reading it. Yeah, um, very good. I guess we'll leave that there. Um, it, it seems like legitimation is hanging by a thread, but it just happens to be a very, very strong thread. Um, so, you know, that's the that's the paradox, I guess. Anyway, um, I'm really looking forward to doing part three and then part four will where we will draw broader themes, put these concepts to work, look at more contemporary questions, discuss through kind of what the crisis of the neoliberal age looks like and if we can apply a sort of Habermasian approach to it, if that's useful at all, um, and draw in some maybe some other readings. That'll be all in episode four. Um, but we have episode three before that, which is the final part of this book. Um, really, really looking forward to this. Um, it's 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 heating up, you know, the skillet is sizzling, um, the fish is frying, the aromas are filling the air, and um, my lips are so moist. Okay, catch you later. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Meaning holes and moist lips. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's going on? <laughs> okay.